Today is Wednesday. It's January 31st, 2024. It's 2.41 in the afternoon. And my second granddaughter was born about 9 o'clock last night. Woo, 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 woo. Hi, I'm John Williams. How about them apples? And this is the Mincing Mincing Rascals podcast, portions of which are heard some Saturday nights on WGN Radio. You can always hear me weekdays from 10 to 2 on WGN. I'm Austin Bird from the Illinois Policy Institute, and you can get my book, The New Chicago Way, Lessons from Other Big Cities. I'm Kate Plies, former Chicago reporter and columnist, now running the strange Chicago history website, Roseland, Chicago, 1972. I'm Eric Zorn, the publisher of the Picayune Sentinel, former Chicago Tribune columnist who is standing in solidarity with the Tribune newsroom, which is on strike on Thursday. Oh. So I will will be joining, I hope, a lot of people in town are not clicking on Tribune stories, not reading the Tribune, and uh, hoping that they can get at least a little bit of advantage against Alden Global Capital in their contract negotiations, which have now dragged on for five years. Wow. I'm reading the uh, CT Guild tweet here. Chicago Tribune journalists going on strike for 24 hours for the first time in history. The Guild has bargained for a fair contract price since 2018. And Alden, that would be Alden Global Capital, the just awful company, (laughs) responded by offering functional pay cuts and fewer benefits, despite the Trib's profits. We're done playing games. Here's how you can show your solidarity. Do not click on Tribune stories at chicagotribune.com. Do not engage with Trib's social media accounts. Do not open and engage with the Tribune emails and news alerts. Respect our picket line by not crossing the clicket line. It's, it's funny because in the past, I think we felt like you want to support journalism, though, and the journalists, so you still engage with the Tribune, even though the owners of the company weren't treating the people well. Who benefits when nobody benefits? But this is 24 hours, huh, Eric? It's just 24 hours, and they are urging people not to cancel their subscriptions or anything. Yeah, right. just, I think they just want it, they want it to be a, a show of, of support that would show up in the metrics that Alden would know that that people do value the Tribune and that they are uh, on the side of the journalists who are looking for a better contract or any contract at this point. It's it's a, it's a tough situation and, and I you know I'm not as an outsider here kind of I, I I'm not that optimistic about this being all that successful. Uh, it's just really hard these days to have any kind of strike when you have you know what so much is done digitally that I'm sure the Tribune will put out a newspaper. Uh, on Friday that will have a lot of stories in it. Um, they probably have some stories that are banked by some of the people who will be uh, on strike, and they will be able to run Associated Press, Wire stories, freelance stories to cover the the news of the day. Might have been more effective to do it today, actually, now that I think of it, because the the big city council meeting today, there's always a lot of news coming out of city council. I don't know what news is going to break tomorrow. They're going to have to have to write up, but uh It'll be interesting to see what happens, and and again, I hope that they get some leverage and that they make get some movement in their contract talks. A little worried that they're not going to get a big enough response. This is the first I've even heard of it. Yeah, me too. So, me I'm too. wondering well, how much they're getting it, the word out. It's been it's well, it's it, it was a secret until about a couple hours ago, and we're talking <laughs> right now. We're talking about about um, we're close to three o'clock here on. on well, they don't on want Wednesday. us to engage on Thursday. They want us to take Thursday. Thursday, yeah, they want us to not, do not do this on Thursday. And, Guys, uh, give us a uh, day. 
And, you know, I, I've been told about this being a heads up on it on Monday saying, look, we're going to do this. We, we want to spring it on the company Thursday night or Wednesday night. That was their plan. They were, they wanted it to be a surprise. But, of course, they're, they're coordinating this through all Tribune newspapers, uh, Tribune publishing publications that are owned by Alden. And, and I guess somebody in Virginia spilled the beans to management. And so the word got out. And so that they decided to yeah but to get how can you you can't engage a successful boycott if you don't tell people to boycott i mean a lot of people probably would support them anybody that knows alden would support the tribune journalists but <laughs> they're going to miss the chance tomorrow eric i hope they don't um kate and austin and you and i will get the news out i, <laughs> I, don't I hope so but i'm i'm reminded of dr strangelove why didn't you tell the world huh <laughs> oh wow a dr strangelove drop holy cow why didn't you tell the world there's People no fighting in the war room okay we have to move on okay our state's board of elections voted eight to nothing to keep donald trump on the state's gop primary ballot not because they did not think that he wasn't an insurrectionist but maybe because they lack the authority in this case to do so it requires a constitutional interpretation beyond their purview so the four republicans and four democrats said not their call Interestingly, the former Republican judge who recommended that they keep Trump on the ballot said that Trump's actions were, in fact, insurrectionist. And at least one Republican on the board who voted to keep Trump as an option on the ballot agreed. He incited an insurrection, but it wasn't up to her to decide. Another way to think about this, said my colleague Steve Bertrand, who used to join us on The Mincing Rascals, is not that it wasn't their job, what if not this is their job, but that the courts were going to decide anyway, so let's just pass this on to the judges. Either way, When's the last time four Republicans and four Democrats agreed on anything? I think that totally makes sense to let that process work through the courts. I think a a, a little known uh, body like the Illinois State Board of Elections that actually doesn't have a lot of teeth on a lot of things coming out really strong on something like this, while it's almost impossible to get any kind of accountability for things like campaign finance rule breaking and misspending of funds like that would would be a really bad look for that board. So I, I think this made total sense. Yeah, no, I, I agree with Austin. I think that it's it's a difficult situation. It's going to be resolved by the courts, and so you can make a symbolic vote either way. I don't think it really matters because if the Supreme Court ends up ruling that that uh, states do have this power, or that or that it was an insurrectionary act, and that Trump is off the ballot, then they will revisit a decision like this for them to make a symbolic vote. I think it, it's it's better to to have a, a statement that says. Both parties agree that we need to let the courts figure this out. It's a constitutional question. Um, it's not like a, an age dispute or a petition dispute. This is a, a major dispute on a major issue, and we, we you don't want this this little body. Just like I think was it Maine where the Secretary of State kind of sure. unilaterally decided yeah. like we don't want him on the ballot. And, and even though I don't want Donald Trump on the ballot, I don't want him anywhere near near the presidency. But but I I would not want secretaries of state deciding on their own who's who is and who isn't allowed to be on the ballot fair enough but i think you and i can be academic about this because kate we're from illinois i i wonder how much more animated we would be if we were wisconsin or arizona or help me out here michigan or georgia you know one of those states nevada states where the election might actually be determined i I feel for those judges uh well not judges but the uh the people on the electoral board because every 
I'll, I'll read a really scholarly article about it saying that Trump absolutely positively should not be allowed on any ballot and everything points that way. And I'll think, yes, that all sounds exactly right. And then I'll read something else and go, well, but uh, yeah, no, um, it would be just such a bad look to have people's vote taken away that way. And um, I basically don't want the future to have, as we've said before, someplace like Texas deciding who I can vote for. for Oh, yeah, right. So I I feel like they came to the right decision. But like Eric, um, uh, their statement, they shouldn't have admitted, basically. (laughs) (laughs) They shouldn't have admitted quite so candidly that they were just punting without being a little bit more scholarly about it. I, yeah. I I respect their punt here. I, I think it was it's saying that they're punting, saying that they're very concerned. Even the you know the Republicans saying they're very concerned about what Trump did. I'm I'm a little less concerned about the idea of we're taking away the people's right to vote. You know, Taylor Swift can't run for president because she's 34. Is that does that mean that I somehow democracy has been thwarted because I'm unable to vote for Taylor Swift because she's a year too young to be president? I don't think so. I think you have to have laws in place as to ballot eligibility. And the same thing was, I felt the same way about this ridiculous thing about we, we have to be uh, born on U.S. soil to uh, to or be, or be born an American citizen, I guess, to, to be eligible to be the president. Um, you know, it's the same sort of thing. It's like, that's that's the law. And and uh, it doesn't necessarily offend democracy if you have laws and you follow them. So if there's a law and Donald Trump has has engaged in insurrection by the definition that we've established in, in courts, then I'm OK with him being off the ballot. Um, I don't think it's going to happen, but I'm OK with it. Oh, I totally agree with you there. Absolutely. Uh, but the problem is that the definitions here are just so, so vague, even though. Yeah. You can read one, you know, scholar, and it sounds like he knows absolutely sure that it's all fine. It's still, it's it's vague. If it's if it's not defined by the courts, then uh, every secretary of state in the entire country can make up their own, you know, mind about what counts. Well, yes. I think that's the point Eric made in a previous podcast that yeah. those other two considerations, age or place of birth, are pretty clear. It's up or down. This one is not so much. But I do want to sort of yell out cowards. I mean, because what we're doing is siphoning all of this down then to the Supreme Court, a handful of people who many of them were picked by the person. They're not going to recuse themselves and and they're going to decide. And if, in fact, it was insurrectionist, you know, it, I, don't, I don't know what that would mean. But if, in fact, that was the act of insurrection, why is everybody afraid to call it that or act on it? They are empowered, this Board of Elections, to determine if you're eligible to be on the GOP primary ballot. So go ahead and say, no, we don't think so. They said that. He shouldn't be on the ballot. Vote that way. The Supreme Court will still make the call, but everybody's just ceding their authority in this case to the people Trump picked. Well, I guess part of it is that people feel like there's really no good choice here because the Supreme Court is going to get to make this ruling and that I'm sure that they'll uh, justify it. However, they do it in some sensible way, but but uh, it, it it does feel like well, you can make a statement one way or the other, or you can realize that that your statement is just. Uh, I mean, and I, I even don't want to 
draw too much of a parallel here, but there's something similar going on with this uh, this resolution in city council that passed on Wednesday, saying that saying that they want a ceasefire in Gaza. Uh, it's it's utterly symbolic, completely symbolic. It's like no oh, one. It's not no a binding resolution, the, Eric. No, no it's not a <laughs> binding resolution. No, no one in the Middle East has been waiting for what the uh, alder men and women of the um, uh, Chicago City Council think about their uh, their war over there. But it's a, it's a it's a statement. They're saying, and and the statement by the board of elections here is just like, well, look, you know, we may feel different ways about this, but we know that fundamentally this is not our question to decide. So I yeah. think I I respect that more. Well, at least I the think, city council than, voted. Oh, but you don't respect. You don't think that was a good use of the city council's time to pass a non-binding resolution on this. I I don't I mean I, I don't I don't see the point of that I mean there there's lots and lots of issues nation, nationally and internationally that the city council has no business in I mean it's not that they're not citizens and have concerns and, and so like that, but this is not their bailiwick uh, and they can talk about the water shortage in the, on the Colorado River and things like that I mean it's not this is not Chicago City Council business or and and so I, I think if, if it's something that they can do something about sure but this is not that. Well, there are many Arab constituents and Jewish constituents in Chicago. I, I'm, I'm trying to find a box to put this in. I kind of agree with you, Eric. Uh, Austin, were you surprised by them taking it up or the final vote? The mayor cast the deciding ballot on that. I just want to know what the rules are about what I can talk about based on where I live. Because I was told that if I live in Oak Park and I talk about the business climate and the high taxes of Chicago. Oh, yeah. I need to shut the F up about Chicago. Who told you that? I think a certain mayor told me that. Yes, he did. And <laughs> But if I live in Chicago, <laughs> I'm allowed to use precious political capital and time, time and resources on an incredibly divisive issue halfway across the world that is extraordinarily complicated, that that not only is okay, but that's actually a just... That is just and good. So he can't have it both ways. The fact that this was done after a massive walkout uh, from Chicago Public Schools students yesterday who went and marched in, in City Hall, and the mayor said that this was a fantastic thing, and he was so thankful for it, and then indeed goes and casts this, this tie-breaking vote. I mean, I, I do not see how anyone in the middle east is well served by this and i see almost no no way that anyone in chicago is served well by this except for a very small segment of activists do you have the language of the resolution with you what did the city council therefore say uh here here's the breaking news story chicago has become the largest city in the u.s to call for a ceasefire in gaza Uh, Mayor Johnson broke the 2023 tie by supporting the resolution calling for an end to violence, the release of hostages, and supplying humanitarian aid. It was 24-23 with his vote. Four alders did not vote. So I guess there's no um, controversy or harm in the statement, right? Like there's nothing incendiary here. We're not taking sides, maybe you would interpret that as being pro-Palestinian. Is that is that the rub here? Um, I'm not completely clear on, on what the wording is that they came up with now, because it's been changing constantly. When they initially came out with this, it did not call for releasing the hostages, the Israeli hostages. It 
acknowledged that they existed but did not ask for them to be released originally. Now, I believe my understanding was that that definitely got amended, but I don't know what else got amended. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure. I would say I, too, find it incredibly irritating that with all the problems going on, that they should be expending so much time and energy on an issue that we can't possibly address fairly, I feel like. It's just way too complicated for city council resolution to to be solving. But, uh, okay, fine, I get it. It's 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 all political, and, and actually, apparently, Cook County has the largest number of Palestinian Americans, apparently, of any other county right, right. In, yeah. in the country. So, it, you know, there's yeah. just no way, politically, we're going to get away from this kind of grandstanding. Yeah, and I, I want to be clear. I mean, I, I think the, the violence over there needs to end, that it, that the atrocities that are being, that were committed and are being committed are, are terrible, and that we need to, those need to stop. I don't know the terms under which they should stop. I think that, you know, the release of hostages, the release of political prisoners, uh, Palestinian political prisoners, all that has to happen. But as Austin points out, this is a, a complicated, very complicated situation that goes back many decades. And for any simplistic answer is going to be really difficult. Although the resolution didn't get into the weeds. It's, I mean, like, would the four of us agree that there should be an end to the violence? Would you support that? Yeah. Um, Would you support supplying humanitarian aid? I think, I don't think that's a controversial stand. And the city council has called for the release of hostages. Mm, That's getting into the weeds now. What are you going to get in exchange for that? I guess that may have made it difficult for the 23 who voted against it. But I'm with you guys that considering the migrant housing situation we have in Chicago, this this should not have taken up a couple of hours of the city council's time. We have a guest who's joined us. Uh, Eric, welcome to WGN. Well, that's where I'm sitting, but welcome to the Mincing Rascals podcast. Thanks for having me. We are all experts in policing here in Chicago, and we are, many of us anyway, not happy with how... Some of the police are doing. Today, the Tribune and Sun-Times both opined that scarecrow police cars, SUVs parked with their Mars lights on and high-profile destinations, are a bad idea. And both papers agreed with most of my listeners that the police should be present, but in person, walking the beat at these and other locations. Meanwhile, the Daily Podcast recently discussed the use of police body cams in New York, It's neither productive nor efficient. They said the almost gold standard of police body cam use, according to a guest on that daily podcast, ProPublica's Eric Umansky, is the city of Chicago. Eric is an editor-at-large at at ProPublica and has overseen two Pulitzer Prize-winning projects there. You may have seen his columns and articles in Slate, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and he's joining us now. Thanks for having me. Just tell us a little bit about your reporting on that. You talked about how it is in New York, and then as I was listening to the podcast, I thought, hey, I wonder where he's going to go with this. And they said Chicago is actually a pretty good example of police body cam use. Just tell us a little bit about what you found and thought about that. 
What I did was a pretty lengthy story for the Times Magazine in um, December that looked at the promise of body-worn cameras, which really became popular about a decade ago um, in the wake of the first Black Lives Matters protests um, after the killing of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri. Um, and, and these little black boxes, all, all, all listeners, I'm sure, have seen them are familiar with them you know showed up on officers um vests and uh, officers chest and the idea was that they would bring um transparency and uh, accountability that um, the public would be able to see um, how officers were conducting themselves um and if officers did something wrong there then would be footage so they would get in trouble for it um and what I really looked at was how that promise has borne out. Um, and I, I really dug into New York City, as you were just uh, mentioning. Um, and in New York City, um, what you find is um, footage is almost never made public, or is, is often not made public, I should say, um, and is often not acted on by the police when there is footage of misconduct. Um, and I, I go through a, a bunch of um, you know examples in this story, and it's really a dynamic that's played out similarly across the country. Um, we looked at, for example, we calculated all um, police killings in one month 20, in one month of 2022 and said a year and a half later, how much of that footage um, has been made public? And the answer is in um, about 60% of the cases, footage has no footage at all in uh, police shootings, which is obviously the most kind of extreme form of force a police could use, um, has still not been made public. The majority of the time, no footage has been made public. Um, so, so that's the national trend. That's what it looks like in New York. And then I thought, you know, it, it, I, I want to look at a place where it's done better, maybe not perfectly, but where it's done better. Um, and to my surprise, and, and I think it's probably perhaps, uh, to all of your surprise, I end up in Chicago. Um, and the reason, uh, uh that Chicago does it, uh, uh, does things differently, um, is because of what happened after the murder of Laquan McDonald. You know, the, the city um, uh, refused to release footage for a, a year. Officers covered up um, the, uh, the killing. And, and when a judge finally forced the city to release footage, um, what it shows is, that I think what you guys all know, was that a teenager, 17-year-old Laquan McDonald, um, had been shot 16 times um, in, in the back and when he was on the ground. Um, and there was a, a mass outrage um, after that. And, and police oversight uh, in Chicago began to be reimagined. Again, not perfectly, um, but, but it really changed. And one of the changes was the city committed to releasing footage uh, after uh, in police shootings after or no long, uh, later than 60 days after a shooting. Um, and and what's more, there was a new police oversight agency, I'm sure you guys have heard of it, COPA, um, that had eventually essentially got 
the authority, first of all, to get footage on its own. You know, in New York and most other cities, the um, civilian oversight agency has to ask the police department, say, pretty please, can I please have this footage? Um, And sometimes police departments give it and sometimes they don't. In Chicago, the civilian oversight agency, COPA, has direct access to uh, footage. And they themselves are the agency charged with releasing it to the public after shootings and other um, serious incidents. So so it's not the um, police. And, and those are pretty significant uh, uh, differences. You know, policing in Chicago, you all know more well than I, is, is not perfect. Um, but in, in this respect, Chicago does something that other cities don't. One of the interesting things I, I saw online in the dialogue about uh, your reporting, Eric, which was great, was something that I hadn't really considered before, which is that you can remember in criminal justice reform circles 10, 15 years ago that body-worn cameras were seen as this sort of panacea and that they were going to eliminate systemic racism in the system. And it's just like this one thing that Republicans and Democrats can agree on is is great. And then often the devil's in the details, right? It's like, well, who has access to the footage and how timely is it? Um, and you mentioned the Tyree Nichols case. And what I thought was very interesting about that is that the first footage that the public was able to see from that case was not from a body-worn camera, but was from a street camera on a, on a yeah. lamppost or a power line or something like that. Uh, and that was critical to bringing accountability uh, to those officers in that department in Memphis. In your reporting, did you find a, a big difference or chasm between how maybe some of that footage is treated? Just because in Chicago, I think we're the most, we maybe have more cameras than any other city on a per block basis. And most of the things that happen on the street are captured captured by them is it just as difficult to get hold of that footage or is there are there is it treated differently so so typically it is often difficult to get a hold of that footage it's all about the question of honestly who, who controls the footage and um i think those things were called this is probably not the exact right word but it's like a sky cam or something like that um in memphis and those were also controlled by the police so you know it's the same sort of decision making but the thing about um uh, Tyree Nichols case that just really kind of stuck out to me was um, uh, I was actually reading about it in the Times and there was this reference to um, uh, there was a note that said the officers knew that their the officers who were beating Tyree Nichols to death knew that their cameras were on and continued beating him anyway. And then that sort of raised the question to you, well, how, how could that possibly be, right? What about all these promises? Um, and so I, I actually made some phone calls and did some reporting around um, the cameras in Memphis. And the answer is they never released that footage. They, they, you know, the fact that they released it in the case of Tyree Nichols was an enormous exception because they had killed him. And the outrage was mounting and they didn't have a, uh, uh, an option. But generally speaking, you know, they, they don't in, I, I looked at, I looked at actually police shootings, um, in the months before and the months after his killing and, um, footage both from the, the cameras on the street and from body worn cameras never, uh, never released. Now, is that is that part of uh, contract negotiations that in the that the police want this, or is it does the city itself think this is a good idea? Uh, in terms of the release of footage, yeah, or the release, right? Of, yeah, no, the release. So, so g- generally speaking, um, there, there's no 
you know, the, 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 so Axon is the maker of these uh, cameras. By the way, a side note, Axon, formerly known as Taser because it's the same company, um, and it controls 80% of the market. Generally speaking, it's just up to a police department's discretion of whether or not to release uh, uh, footage. I mean, um, Chicago has this unusual thing that there's a citywide policy. It's, it's usually, it's not in a police, um, police contracts often sort of speak to when officers need to turn them on, when they shouldn't be turned on and so forth. But in terms of the question of disclosure, it's just up to the police departments. Do you find that it does deter police from acting more violently, more rashly? So um, uh, it's a great question. And um, there's been an enormous amount of uh, research uh, on this very question. Um, and I'm going to give you an unsatisfying answer, which is that the results are mixed. Um, and it's it's not really clear that it does. Now, um, I am going beyond what the research um, supports, but I will just tell you that one possibility is that well, it all depends on how the body-worn cameras are being used. You know, are officers being held accountable when uh, uh, there is um, video of uh, misconduct? You know, that probably means they would be, their colleagues would be dissuaded or might think twice uh, about, in, in you know, use of um, force mm-hmm. versus in Memphis. You know, frankly, the officers had learned, but it just it doesn't make a difference. Um, and they acted accordingly. So, but but the research is um, um, has not yet kind of honed in on that kind of granular uh, question as much as I've asked. Uh, yeah, right. Yeah, uh, right. Academics, because I've asked them. <laughs> you would think it's a really urgent question, really important question, because and and the excuse that departments give for not releasing this video is that it hampers investigations. I think I heard you say that on the uh, on the Daily Show. Yeah, I mean there are usually kind of two reasons cited the first one is yeah it would it would interfere with an ongoing investigation um and as i've you know said before i have run that idea past um prosecutors um and and past police investigators and basically what they've said is you know there's a logic to that to you don't want video to be out there before you interview a person who's at the center of it um, so uh, you don't want them knowing what what uh, you you know know and don't know. Um, but that's a that's a short term problem that yes. if, um, you know you can deal with it expeditiously. Um, you know, in some of the cases I detailed in um, the um, NYPD, they have withheld footage for well over uh, a year. Um, in another case in um, Alabama, that's really one of the most horrific cases that um, I've seen and that we wrote about, um, an officer um, killed a, a man by letting his dog, uh, by sticking his dog um, on this guy. And um, uh, it's now been four plus years, I believe, um, that they have refused to release footage. And in that instance, they say the footage is so gruesome it may result in civil unrest. That is actually <laughs> their reason for for not disclosing it. Wow, um, Eric. First of all, it, it's an amazing article. Really um, wonderful. People would really be interested in, in reading it. I'm sure, as well as listening to uh, the daily podcast, uh, giving an overview of it. Um, you mentioned 
And it's in the article that you did do that snapshot look at June 2022 to see how much in general these shootings, specifically shootings, get the footage released. And I think it was something like 42% only. Yeah, yeah, that's right. We, we found 42%. Yeah. I was just wondering, did you, do you remember what the numbers are in Chicago for, for the percentage that actually do get released? Because I went and just tried to see what I, if, if there was anything like in the Tribune or the Sun-Times about cases where the body cam footage wasn't coming out. And I could only find two cases being mentioned. I don't have the specific numbers. What I, what I can say is, is, you know, in Chicago, it's the civilian oversight agency, COPA, that that has the power to um, release the footage. Not just actually the power to release the footage. That is the designated main agency to release it. In other words, the police department is is not the one releasing uh, footage anymore. Um, it, it's COPA. And so my, my understanding is um, that they've released, I don't, I don't know what the, um, I'd be interested in knowing, what the couple of cases that you noticed are. One of the stats that um, was interesting to me is that I, I was looking, excuse me, at police, um, police violence, frankly, and, and use of force before Laquan McDonald and and now. And, you know, there was a police shooting every five days in uh, Chicago. And last year, by contrast, there were 22. Oh, that's a that's an enormous decline. It's more than more than half. Use of force has also gone down by, by about a third. Now, I just want to be careful there, right? There's a new superintendent. There have been multiple superintendents. There have been kind of all sorts of changes um, that have happened in, in Chicago. Um, but but this use of footage is, you know, is one of the um, is is one of the um, significant things that they've done. I hope that's just an all positive thing. Definitely. On the other hand, our our crime has really skyrocketed since what 2020 oh i think yeah, it's sort of going up during the i think it's sort of going up during the pandemic and i think it's come down actually in the last it's year, come down but- a little bit but it's still it's still up a lot since george floyd so a lot of people definitely have argued that it's because the police are engaging less we also and of course you haven't yeah. had time to just look at everything in, in chicago but we also have more rules on police chases both foot chases and car chases that might be impacting it. One of the things that I what struck me in, in reading about this issue was that in some cases, and maybe in Chicago's, the police contract allows officers to look at body cam mm-hmm. and other other and, and dash cam videos before they file their reports. Because one of the things that I find striking in covering some of these cases over the years is when the footage does finally come out, and the, the Laquan McDonald case is an excellent example, You'll have all kinds of officers on the scene all telling the story about, oh, Laquan McDonald, he lunged. He lunged at the officer. He was posing a threat. And you then you go and you realize that they're all lying and they're all lying or misremembering. Let's give them the benefit of the doubt. But they're all misremembering in a way that benefits the police account of the story and not the not the account that we ended up seeing for ourselves, which is that Laquan McDonald was walking away when he was shot 16 times. So I, I'm, I'm wondering, do, when you look, look at this around the country, do do officers have that right? Do you know in, in most places, um, in a few places? They do in, in most places. And, uh, and I think you're right to flag it as potentially problematic. It creates this weird thing, by the way, because what it means is um, that 
officers have a right to see footage and the public doesn't, right? Um, you know, that's a kind of dynamic that ends up um, uh, playing out. A, a lot of um, um, it is, it's it's quite common for it to be um, written into uh, uh, contracts. And so then you're dealing with the dynamic of police unions, which, by the way, I, I, I know um, the Fraternal Order of Police in Chicago uh, last year, um, they negotiated a new contract and um, put in all sorts of stipulations about body-worn cameras. For example, you know, um, footage taken at, in the aftermath of an incident um, in discussions involving, you know, an officer and their supervisor can't be used for discipline. Eric, that's the thing I also wondered yeah. if that came up in your research is that, at least in Illinois, Union contracts trump whatever state law is passed. They trump whatever city ordinance is passed. Yeah. And we even passed a new constitutional amendment uh, last year at the election, Amendment 1, which basically said that any law that restricts collective bargaining is unconstitutional. So if it, it, it seems like, at least in this state, I'm not sure about others, but really the union contract is going to decide what the policy is more often than not, no matter what people vote on certainly union contracts are are very strong and and in some um, cities you know in i think it's philadelphia there's this uh language written into the contract that says um supervisors may not go through footage um looking for identifying problematic conduct um, <laughs> you, you can't wow right? and it was like well what are they supposed to use it for uh <laughs> you know? um and um, so yeah Exactly. So, so, so you do see that kind of thing. Having said that, you know, again, I think one way to get out of that is, is to give a, a third party entity, not the police access and um, um, control over uh, footage. Right. So then it's like, um, you know, it, it, um, you, you can sidestep uh, many of these uh, issues. Seems to me, though, that if the police are able to look at the video before writing their report, I don't know that that in and of itself is inherently a bad idea. That is, they wouldn't be able to fabricate things. Uh, they, they wouldn't be able to lie their way in a report out of something that disagrees with the video. The video will force their hand to maybe tell the truth. What What is the problem? I know the public should have access to it, more or less. There are instances where maybe minors or innocent people are exposed in a way where they should not be. But I don't have a problem, do I? Should I, with the cops looking at so, the video before right. they write their report? This, it's so it's one way to identify honest cops from dishonest cops. And if you've got someone who is always saying, yeah. yeah but, uh, well, but I mean, Eric, have you ever seen something, a car crash, and you remembered it differently? Was the light red or green? I don't remember. I thought it was green. You thought it was red. Let's go back and look at the video. I, I No, I agree. But, but it was. I thought I was appalled, frankly, at, at what at, at, I, mean, I looked over all the police reports from the uh, from Laquan McDonald shooting. Yeah. And the murder, I should say. And and uh, 
routinely down the line the officers who were on the scene well in that case Eric, I mean, they would have but if but if they had looked at the video and known that was going to be released what would have been the motivation for them to lie about it uniformly wouldn't well, that force their hand yeah i suppose but it's like i'm glad to know when some when you got a <laughs> dishonest cop okay, i mean okay. you know i, I mean I, yeah. I, I guess i would say that they shouldn't be able to see it any any sooner than the public should see it if they're gonna if they're gonna let them see the video then we should see the video okay but you're I, assuming I, that I, anybody who remembers it differently is lying and i'm just laquan's a bad example because the kid was shot down in the street dead and none of that was true but there are instances where you might remember things differently yeah no that's true but but there but it the consistency with which their accounts varied from the truth in a way that advantaged police was striking anyway i wanted to get back to eric and ask him if there's a if there's a um any sort of model legislation uh any sort of uh uh uh, you know, best practices that you identify that should be spread that, that that work like yours can have an impact around the country when negotiations are happening for police contracts and, and so on. ACLU actually has put time into a kind of model um, policy on it that that, um, you know, is about um, transparency while also uh, recognizing, by the way, that these cameras can be um, essentially surveillance uh, devices on a community. Um, and um, so they kind of lay out how to also um, protect uh, privacy. But, you know, the, the, um, and it's, the reason that I wrote about Chicago um, is there's a sort of sad part of it too, which is that there are not many cities and there are not many places where um a civilian, a, a sort of civilian oversight body um, has uh, sort of clear, unfettered access to these devices by that our taxpayer dollars go to, uh, you know, creating and to um, operating, um, and um, and so it, it's a it's a it's a it's a funny system. Um, that we have set up in the United States. We spent hundreds of millions of dollars on these things and then often don't get to see the footage. Are there instances, though, where, in fact, the police body cam footage exonerates the cops? I mean, in a way, this was oh. good for the police as well, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Un- I almost suspect more often, uh, so. as often, maybe. Right. So so, so one of the things um, I looked at, I mean, just to take New York City as an example, um, is uh, uh, there's a civilian oversight board there, and they did a kind of study of what happens when they have cases with body-worn camera footage and they versus cases they don't. And what happens is the, the footage means they come to a clear resolution about the conduct um, is sort of more than twice as often as they would without the footage. And what are the resolutions they come to? Well, um, um, in a significant portion of the um, time, they clear officers. They're able to say what, you know, the civilian alleges um, happened, didn't happen. And yeah, some other portion of the time, they're able to say the officer did do this. But, but you know, being able to come to a clear uh, resolution in neither direction is a is a really healthy thing. Yeah, and, and the same thing is true, by the way, of, of videotaping interrogations. Or uh, uh, they they began doing that in Illinois a while back, and that it's cut way way down on the number of cases in which you have someone saying they yeah, they beat a, they beat a confession out of me, or they or they tricked me into confessing because the entire the entire thing is is. Uh, 
on video and so you don't you don't have those claims anymore and oftentimes the police are are vindicated they say yeah you know he confessed and we didn't force him to and and other times of course the questioning goes too far so maybe rather than rooting for one side or the other let's root for clarity and it does seem to be a vehicle for that the the message from eric's reporting is not that body-worn cameras are are bad it's simply that the policy choices at the margin on these very small things really matter in terms of their impact uh and another under-discussed benefit of them is Often folks who have implemented these in cities talk about the fact that when police officers police officers are called to things like a domestic violence case, the victim is often on camera saying things that they otherwise would recant or not say because of fear of violence from that person. So it also offers incredible evidence for actually solving crimes and bringing uh, justice for victims as well, not even just in these instances of, of uh, police and, and civilians. I will also say it's important to note with these sorts of policies, the impact of them is not going to be gargantuan. And the reason for that is that 90 plus percent of uses of force with police are are legitimate and are legal. But there's a small part that are not. And getting incrementally more clarity on those cases is definitely a good thing. Okay, Austin, I'll let you click out, man. Not suing you, but I know you got to go. I want to honor that. There goes Austin Berg. Eric, we've taken a lot of your time. Any last thoughts or wisdom from you and your reporting for us here in Chicago? I, I don't know about uh, uh, wisdom. Well, I, I will say, I mean, spoken to, I'm, I'm sure folks uh, uh, with whom you're very familiar, like Jamie Calvin and others who've been um, a- active on this issue, you know, one, one thing they've said is, yeah, Chicago uh, does it better than other um, cities, but really, Chicago could and should do it even better. Jamie has been pushing for um, uh, there to be legislation around this issue, so it's not just a question of policy. And he pointed out, and others have pointed out, that the current rule of releasing footage within 60 days of the shooting, you know, 60 days is an eternity for a community to yeah. wait for answers. Yeah. Um, and um, uh, so, you know, that that can change, too. Yeah, I would say I would say that give them 60 hours and if they want to go to court, go to a judge and make a, an argument that the footage cannot be released for investigatory purposes. I'm sure there are cases where it's it's valid to hang on to it for a while because they are there are questions right. that need to be answered. But uh, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm with Jamie Calvin on that. Eric Kamansky, thanks for joining us. Keep reporting and uh, we'll invite you again another day. We hope you enjoyed your time and thanks for helping us out. I yeah, appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I, I really appreciate it. Take care. Bye, guys. You know, one thing that you guys were talking about there at the end, which just kind of reminded me of something unrelated, but access to something that our tax dollars are paying for. I was reading the story in the Tribune today by A.D. Quigg, who's joined us before, and Olivia Stevens. Chicago aldermen focus on pace of migrant work authorizations, work authorizations. And they were just talking about the process of handling these migrants and how can we get them working. But I just wanted to read this paragraph. Aldermen have limited access to the shelters themselves. The aldermen, where the shelters are in their wards, have limited access to the shelters themselves and must give 48 hours notice before a visit. The press is also barred from entering shelters or the landing zone where the buses are coming. you got to be kidding me. 
I should be able to walk in there right now with a pen and paper. The the public at large should be able to have access to these people and ham, hand them a ham sandwich. I, I, I mean, I basically agree with you, John. I, I do understand that they don't want to just have the doors open and anybody walking through these shelters. Uh, but keeping out the media and keeping out elected officials seems like they're hiding something. Who and, made that rule? I guess the city? This is the city council we're talking about. It's uh, their ward. I can see a case for for not letting reporters just automatically in the minute they show up at, at every single shelter. That It is a place where people are living. But yeah, yeah. I think the bad faith is pretty on view by the fact that they won't even let the aldermen in without 48 hours notice. That That's pretty telling. And those people that live in there ain't paying rent. I mean, to be honest with you, if I'm a citizen of Chicago, that's my mortgage. I'm paying the mm-hmm. rent on that place. Right. I guess we need to respect the privacy and safety for these individuals. But if my church gave me a basket and I called ahead and said, I'm going to come by, I'd like to drop it in there. Maybe there's a way for me to do that. But I don't understand why. I think part of the problem with the acceptance of these people in Chicago is because they're only seen as a burden. They are not seen as human beings. They don't speak much English. We don't speak much Spanish. Plenty of people are bilingual. But I think there's just this massive disconnect. I don't get it. I don't understand why the alderman can't go in there. 48 hours notice. It's almost like, okay, quick, hide the thumb screws. Here comes the alderman. Well, recall the shelter where the little boy died and the autopsy. I'm not sure. We've never heard whether they could actually say that that was due to circumstances at the shelter itself. Things were pointing away from that, actually. But nonetheless, apparently the conditions there were pretty awful. So... It does feel like the Johnson administration doesn't even want its own aldermen to be able to go in there and police conditions, and that's not right. So Um, much for transparency. I know. Poor Mayor Johnson. Every time he says something, it comes back to haunt him. That's twice in this podcast. I just wanted to get into something that you shared with us on the dock before we started today, Kate. And you said you, having heard some of my frustrations on the radio, had run into a similar frustration of your own. Tell us what you're talking about. As you've talked about several times, I've heard you talking, we all have the situation where we have to call a company for some reason, and you have to go through a, a computer phone tree that goes on and on and on before you can actually speak to a person so that you end up sitting there with your receiver yelling, just let me talk to somebody, right? So that is a, a common thing. And uh, yeah, I ran into just, just a whole new level of it with Microsoft just yesterday. Um, I have gone through uh, several nightmarish situations with uh, replacing my laptop and Microsoft was just kind of like the cherry on top because it was the very last thing. I thought everything else was done, and I sat down to actually write something yesterday and discovered that when I had re-downloaded the Microsoft Word, that now they won't let me use it, even though I've already bought it, because now they've been pushing, and I know they've been pushing it for a while, but now they're really pushing this thing they call 365, mm-hmm. where Instead of buying the software, you're just kind of renting it. You're subscribing to it. So you're going to pay them over and over again forever. And they also would like to have you logged in so that they can see everything you're doing, I might add. 
and I didn't like that too much. And I saw it last time I bought it. And I, I, that's what I intended to do this time also. But they, I could not find anywhere on their website where I could either buy it again or get information on how I could just, you know, use it for my old laptop. And so finally I called them up and I, I discovered after going through the phone tree that not surprisingly, I got the answer. Go back and look at our website. You'll find your answer. Yeah, Thank I love you that. for calling. And then click, click right? and then it hangs up on you. Right. Amazing. And the mouse strategy and- in those situations is call back, give different answers to the phone tree lie if I have to and say I want something else until I can get an actual person on the phone. But Microsoft sees me coming. They're obvious, other people obviously are doing this. They've programmed their system so that they recognize your phone number. So when I call back, Microsoft will not even let me talk to their computer. They just recognize the phone number and they say, thanks for calling. Go look at the website. Goodbye. Kate. Click. <laughs> That's it. I'm on there. I'm now on their do not call list. That's horrible. And it's, you see that so often. And, you know, I, I've been having a problem with a software program and, uh, I, I, it stopped working on me when I upgraded my system, and and uh, I, I they have this thing like if you've got a problem, write to our you know send, send a note to our tech support helpline, and I do that and I get no response at all, like mm-hmm. not not an acknowledgement, nothing, and and uh, and this is this was gone for a couple of months. I finally just abandoned. I paid fifty bucks for the program, and I just I guess it's just going to be a sunk cost for me. Um, so it, it, it the the uh, Customer service um, is really lousy. Although I will say this, I, you know, I write for Substack, as do you, Kate. Substack, have you, I don't know if you've used their their help services, but their their help stuff is v- they're very responsive. They have been to me. Like I, you know, write to them, and they almost always have an answer. And it seems to come from a person, though I'm not sure. Uh, the AI help has been pretty good. Yeah. Well, do I you think care? they're people. Either they're people or the AI has given itself a couple of different names that it uses consistently. I found them super responsive when I first started out and not so much in the past year because I think they grew so much that they don't have enough staff to yeah. get back to me quickly. But they're not they're not like Microsoft. But that's Microsoft knows that that's you calling in or texting in uh, on their platform. It wouldn't be texting. But anyway, that's you asking yeah. again for help. And since they've already done this for you, they don't even allow you to engage anymore, right? Exactly. That's, they, that's, they know. that's a lot. They know I'm going to lie and say I have a different <laughs> problem so I can talk to a person and they will not let that happen. Uh, you, <laughs> um, since it's AI or a chatbot, I guess that's AI, that would be engaging with you, they could do it for infinity, right? Why do they care if you're trying to get back in? I would just say because there must be a way to answer the questions so that you could talk. You to eventually somebody. figure out their and, thing, and yeah. they don't want you to do that. They've heard you. They heard you tell the truth. They've decided they don't want to talk to you, and that's it. We had an account, a retirement account, or some sort of investment account when I used to work for the Tribune Company because they owned WGN Radio, and so Transamerica was the holder of these small amounts of money that some of us had. And I had a question about that. So I had to set up an account and a username and password. Anyway, when I call in now to ask a question, the voice prompt says, at Transamerica, your voice is your password. And then you say something, and it recognizes your voice, and then you're in. 
I think mm-hmm. that's terrific and also problematic because somebody could interpret my voice, impersonate my voice, make a recording of my voice. I trust it's more complicated than this, but so help me. I know the sentence. They say, at Transamerica, your voice is your password. And then I repeat something, and then they say, hi, John, how can we help you? I think that's pretty fantastic. That's pretty creepy. I uh, yeah, liked that too. it when they first started doing that, but um, they're going to have to change those up. Yeah. Um, I forget what company I deal with who also does the voice recognition, but really? now with, with AI, there, there's no way that's going to be tenable for long. Yeah, the, the, the AI is apparently able to take, will be able to take portions of this podcast or portions of, of your radio show, John, <laughs> yeah, and make yeah. a, a perfect impersonation of you and go into your Transamerica account and take all the money out. Uh, it may be that it may be that it's connected to your phone so that if, so if you call from the number and it matches up with your voice, they don't make you punch in a bunch of codes. Um, I hope maybe so. I hope they're doing some sort of special authentication because there's $57.28 hanging out there, and I don't want somebody else to be able to grab it. It does remind you a little bit, doesn't it, of the George Carlin one-hour special where they took his voice, they wrote some new material based on today's issues, and then there's a whole new George Carlin special. The title of it is something like, Thank God I'm Dead, and it's George Carlin doing a whole new show based on 2024 politics. And, of course, he's passed. His daughter and his um, estate have sued the creators of this because they said this is essentially copyright infringement, even though the computer is telling the jokes uh, and, in in fact, is writing the jokes, a la George Carlin. They said this is material you can't have. This is like stealing from George Carlin. Yeah, I promoting it as if it really is George Carlin? No, no, they're, no they're, they're transparent about that. But it's still huh. George it sounds like hey man, George Carlin here. <laughs> it, huh. And the you know the debate on the radio was okay. Does that sound like George Carlin or not? I thought it sounded like a younger George Carlin um or no, an older George Carlin. Uh, one or the other. I mean, you know his he was there for a long time and when you listen to him before he died and when he was in his 20s, we all sound different. I thought it was pretty convincing. I'm not sure that I buy completely that AI wrote all the jokes uh, either. I mean, mean, there there was some question as to whether this was actually almost an AI hoax, that somebody who Uh. could imitate George Carlin and wrote jokes that were like George Carlin did that. I mean, a a, a differently troubling thing was all this going on with the uh, uh, deep fake photos of of, um, Taylor Taylor Swift Swift in sexual positions and and activities that, uh, I mean, it's completely fake yet yet i mean it looks like taylor swift and she is uh, extremely upset by it apparently and wants to sue and i who can blame her have you but, seen that uh, video eric i i don't think it's video i i've seen some of the still images you have and they, they yeah and they look they look they, they look very real to me it, clearly it's, it's something it's it's pretty easy to do and I don't know how you're going to, I mean, they, they talk about, well, we've got to pass laws against this, but the internet is such a sieve, you know? I mean, things are, are produced all over the world and they're posted up all over the world and you can link to things all over the world. It's going to be really, really hard to keep control of those things. And, and I've said this before that I, this deep fake technology where you can make people sound like they're saying things that they're not and looking like they're doing things that they didn't do it, it impedes a fundamental ability that's necessary for democracy to function, which is the ability to tell truth from a lie. 
to say something that's real, something that's fake. And if you can't do that anymore, if you can no longer say, well, Joe Biden just you know used an ethnic slur. Well, no, he didn't. That was deep fake. Well, well, if you don't know what's true and what isn't, there was a um, uh, an instance not too long ago as the head of the uh, NAACP, I think it was in Illinois, mm-hmm. who was right. who was caught saying something at a Zoom meeting, a recording of a Zoom meeting, and her first response when asked about it was, "Well, you can get AI to do anything." That was her. That was her. So it, it's like it doubled back on itself. Like, okay, we've got this technology, so that yeah, you got a you got a picture of me uh, picking my nose in my car, but that's that's AI. I, that's I didn't do that. <laughs> Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so it's like it, it's uh, it, it to me is very frightening because, like I say, I think our our democracy really depends on that. Yeah, closer to home, you're okay, John, with giving your voice with Trans America or whatever it is, and I guess other places. Mm. And Eric, you said it was creepy. I, I was okay with it when they started, but I do think it's creepy. And for instance, I am not letting my phone. Um, look at my eye or do facial recognition to recognize me. And more to the point, when I when I do go to Whole Foods, have you guys noticed? Do you ever go to Whole Foods? Yeah. They now are really pushing, just use your palm. Just pay us with your palm. With your palm. They want, they want your whole, yeah. Wait not a minute. A not, not an app on your phone, but literally lay your hand on the screen? They want you to hover your hand over the screen to recognize you, I assume, maybe as a Prime member. Wait a minute, but Uh, it's picking up your thumbprint then in the process? Is that what you're saying? Or your handprint? It seems like they want your whole hand, but maybe ultimately it would just be your thumbprint. (laughs) One way or another, they want your biometric information. Uh, I'm sure not giving that to Amazon. But I'm also not giving it to Apple by doing it on my phone with facial recognition. And I point out to my husband right away, the last time we got phones, you know, updated and they had the facial recognition, I said, then that means if someone takes you, if holds you up and takes your phone from you, all they have to do is hold it up to your face to unlock it. And sure enough, that was a plot point on True Detective. (laughs) I I want to go back to the palm recognition. So you hover your hand over it. I kind of like that for a convenience sake. I don't need a username or a password, or I don't need to get out a card or a fob. I just hover my hand over it. It goes, that's that's me. So then is my palm print then connected to my credit card or debit card um i've never actually done it yet and i'm not going to so i don't <laughs> sure know exactly wow. what the process is wow but that's how it begins taking your biometric information and ultimately you're going to pay that way i'm against it in the name of uh, privacy or safety or security it's almost like start using cash attend events live see it with your own eyeballs it's almost like it's better that we roll the technology back so as to ensure our privacy or security. There are some people who do that, of course. Yeah. I'm going to get me some duct tape and a gun and a, and a bottle of water, some canned meat. <laughs> Back to the hills. Forget Preppers. It. Preppers. Preppers. I'm going to be a yes. prepper. A prepper. Well, I think we've spent enough time on this, uh, however fascinating. And I also want to thank our uh, guest who uh, joined us just a bit ago, Eric Umansky, who is with ProPublica, talking about the police body cam footage in Chicago. Austin Burke had to click out. Kate Plies, thanks for joining us as always. You too, Eric Zorn. We're produced by Ben Anderson and Pete Zimmerman. 
I'm John Williams, and we'll drop another podcast on you next week. Fun show, guys. Thanks. Absolutely. uh, Talk next week. Good seeing everybody, and we'll talk soon. Thanks, Kate. Well done. See See you next week. Bye. Subscribe to the Mincing Rascals podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Music Store. You can now also follow us on Spotify, or you can keep listening online at WGNRadio.com. Thank you.